please open up your Bible to page number one. Uh, today, uh, page number one is harder to find than, than you might think, so it, it'll take you a few minutes because you've got to get through a lot of stuff. Um, and today, uh, so we begin a, our journey. It's going to be a long journey uh, through the book of Genesis. Um, you know, after the, uh, the first service, a, uh, a mother uh, of an eighth grader uh, texted me and said, hey, Richard, just so you know, you know, we're, uh, we're placing bets on how long this series is going to go. And, uh, and, and she said, you know, my, my son, who's in eighth grade, uh, he's wondering if, if he's going to graduate high school before this is over. <laughs> and I said, listen, assure him that it will be done by the time he graduates high school, most likely. So, uh, it's going to be a long series. I'm sure we're going to take some breaks here or there. But my, my plan is to push fairly hard through uh, Genesis chapter 11 before we consider taking a, a first break from Genesis. So Genesis chapter 1, uh, the scriptures in both the Old Testament and the New Testament affirm that Genesis is a message from God to his people through his servant Moses. And, and it's crucial that, that we know and that we understand and that we seek to live faithfully in light of what we find in the book of Genesis, and most especially what we find in the opening verses, in this opening chapter, and the opening few chapters of Genesis. So I've got several quotes I want to read throughout this sermon, although it's not an overly long sermon, but several quotes. This is the first of them, and, and it's, it's, it's a few paragraphs, but it's very helpful, I think, as we begin our journey into Genesis. And this is from retired seminary professor Richard Belcher. He says, Genesis 1.1 to 11.9 sets forth foundational truths concerning the character and role of human beings within the world God has created. These chapters are vital because if people do not understand the basic truths laid out here, then they will operate from a worldview that is distorted. Without understanding the goodness of God's creation, people will either conclude that material things are bad, or they will pursue material things as the highest good without recognizing the boundaries God the Creator has established for His creation. Without recognizing the nature of sin, people will not be effective in living with other human beings, in establishing policies to deal with human behavior, and in understanding God's solution to the problem. And finally, without understanding the character of God, people will conclude that God is unjust in His judgment, and they will not see His gracious pursuit to establish His people through the fulfillment of His promises. If people do not understand Genesis 1-11, to they'll be operating with a distorted view of their own life and the world in which they live. And I think he's right. And I think a distorted view, a wrong view, a faulty view flawed view of Genesis chapters you know, 1 to 11 is, is, in, is in many ways, I mean, we see the impacts of that every day, every day around us. And not just you know, in, in, in our city, in our world, outside the walls of the church, but we see it even within churches. That's important that we think well and faithfully about the book of Genesis, that it really does matter. Now, we're going to take it slow through these opening verses of Genesis because they have a lot to say. There's a lot we need to know, a lot we need to understand, a lot we, a lot we need to live in light of. Now, we're not always going to take it as slow as we're going to take it today because today 
even though it's printed that we're going to go Genesis 1-1, which you may not seem think is a lot, we're actually going to make it about halfway through that. Okay, so we're going to make it to four words today. Okay, four words. And, uh, but I think you'll see that these are four very, very important words, and there's more than enough for us to consider. So here now, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love and for our good. And so those first four words, in the beginning, God, are what we're going to focus on primarily today. And so we're going to look at, have two headings. First, in the beginning, we'll spend a little bit of time there. And the majority of the sermon today is going to be on the one word, God. And I hope that you'll see, if you're not already convinced, that one word, God, is a pretty important word. There's a whole lot that's there. It's a whole lot for us to understand. A whole lot that it's important that we get right about who God is, about his character, about his promises. So in the beginning, God. So first, in the beginning, looking at Genesis 1-1, the first verse of the Bible speaks of the beginning. And that is the absolute beginning of the universe, of, of history. The beginning of God creating the cosmos, the heavens and the earth, all things. You know, Pastor Richard Phillips says these opening words form the initial basis for a Christian worldview. That there was a beginning means that things have not always been. Matter and life have a definite beginning. And by identifying that origin, we learn vital truths about them. Now, up until the, the 1950s, Scientists widely believed in a steady-state theory of the universe, which they believed had always existed. However, the steady-state theory was replaced in the years after Edwin Hubble made the observation that stars and galaxies are moving away from one another, which was interpreted as evidence that there was a definite beginning of the universe, right? a big bang, which launched matter into all the various directions. And today, the Big Bang is the leading scientific theory of how the universe was created. Now, full disclosure, I, I'm not an astronomer or a physicist or a geologist or any type of scientist, but my understanding of the Big Bang theory is that supposedly around 13.7, uh, 13.8, give or take, billion years ago, there was nothing, and then there was an explosion, a Big Bang at a single point. And that that event caused everything. Now, again, I, I'm, I'm only a pastor. I have degrees in, in math and in theology. But this theory raises questions that I don't believe it can answer. And yet that it has to, that, that must be answered. For example, what or who caused this big bang? We have to wrestle with that. We have to wrestle with, you know, do we really believe that it's rational and logical to believe that something came from nothing if we can only explain such an event with natural and material causes that exclude the supernatural work of an eternal creator God? Right, these, are, these are big questions. Now, the first verse of the Bible speaks of the beginning. Right, that is the absolute beginning 
And as we've already heard today, right, the Bible doesn't point to a naturalistic, materialistic, impersonal, and mysterious Big Bang Theory. The Bible points to God. You know, the, the old Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, he says this, the first verse of the Bible gives us a surer and better, a more satisfying and useful knowledge of the origin of the universe than all the volumes of the philosophers. The lively faith of humble Christians understands this matter better than the elevated fancy of the greatest minds. So this beginning is the beginning of God creating the cosmos, the heavens and the earth, all things. In the beginning. Now our second heading where we'll spend the rest of our time, God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it's so important that we not miss what the first verse of the Bible is teaching us. Right before the beginning of the cosmos, before the beginning of the universe, before the beginning of history, God was there. In the beginning, God. The Old Testament theologian Derek Kidner said, it's no accident that God is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible, for this word dominates, the word God dominates the whole chapter catches the eye at every point of the page, is used some 35 times in as many verses of the story. The passage, indeed the book, is about him, first of all, to read it with any other primary interest, which is all too possible, is to misread it. And that's important, guys. We need to keep that in mind as we come to Genesis 1. Right? To read Genesis 1, looking for the answers to the questions that we want to ask, is going to end up leading you to misread Genesis 1 and to miss the point. The point, theologian Lane Tipton says, the central concern of Scripture is the glory of the self-contained triune God. Not man, not the earth, not the age of the earth, not angels, not Satan, but God himself. You see, the subject of God is the most important subject there is. Right? Every other subject depends on what we know about God, what we believe about God. I mean, what you think about yourself depends on who you think God is, how you treat one another. Largely depends on what you believe about God. How you treat your spouse, how you raise your kids, determines you know, what you believe about God. I mean, do, do, you, do you believe that? <laughs> that what you believe about God, your, your own doctrine of God, matters that much? It impacts everything. You know, pastors and theologians throughout the centuries, they've known this. Right? And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it because... In 2024, we tend to focus so much on what we perceive to be our felt needs, but we don't even realize that having a, a faithful understanding of who God is, that's one of the greatest needs that we have. Many of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon, you know, famous prince of uh, preachers. He uh, had a famous 38-year preaching ministry at New Park Street Chapel in London, and in his first sermon there, as a 19-year-old, he began the sermon by saying, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, 
The mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There's something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It's a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And J.I. Packer in his best-selling book, Knowing God, says that we should be warned if, if we neglect to, to study and, and who God is and to seek to know him. He says, the world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business. Disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfold, as it were, with no sense of direction, no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. So here at the very beginning of this study of Genesis, I want to ask you the question, okay, how, how well do you know your God? How well do you know him? Do you feel like you know him? Do you feel like you know him well? See, what we, what we believe about God matters. It impacts the way that we pray. Right, Axel leads us in, in prayer this morning. You listen to him pray, that you can know, you can learn from Axel what he believes and thinks about God by the way that he prays. Right, what we believe about God impacts the way we pray. It impacts how we read our Bibles. And, and even whether or not we read our Bibles. Whether or not we believe the promises that we find in the Bible. What we believe about God impacts what we do with our sin. And how quick we are to confess it. Whether or not we attempt to run away and hide from God. It impacts how we relate to and treat those around us who are made in God's image. So I ask you again, how well do you know your God? See, this is a very important, very important topic. The topic. And I say that because we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about God. So I want us to think about, okay, what is it that we learn about God from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? There's several things, okay? I'm going to start with what I think is most obvious. Then we're going to move to what we maybe have never thought about before, okay? So first, what do we know about God? The first thing, God is eternal. God is eternal. Before the beginning, there was God. We see it in Genesis 1.1. Moses also writes the same thing in Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Right? God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That our God and his glory is from everlasting to everlasting, enduring forever. See, God is not himself part of the creation. That he's so far above it. All things come from him, and all things in different ways return to him as he is everlasting and eternal. Now, if uh, you know if you uh, grew up Presbyterian, then you may even remember this. You may remember really your first introduction into theology was most likely by way of the children's catechism. 
And if you've been coming to this church for some time and you've had young kids, my guess is you've even tried to use the children's catechism with your children. I mean tried because we all successfully make it through the first few questions, right? And then we think, oh, this is really fun. They're learning so much. And then we realize, okay, this is going to take some serious dedication to make it all the way through, you know, this list of questions. But the first ones, we get, we get going good, right? So who made you? And we know the answer is, okay, we, okay, we got to... All right, um, Angela, we're, we got we got to get some catechisms going again. Okay, so who made you? God. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For His own glory. That's right. And about that time, then one of our children will ask us, "Okay, Mom, Dad, but who made God?" Right. And the answer, of course, is no one made God. God has always existed. And the theological word for this is God's aseity. Or put more plainly, God is self-existing. God exists eternally in and of himself. Or as Dutch theologian Herman Bovink put it, all that God is, he is of himself. Okay, I know at this point you're all thinking, I miss Ruth. I wish we were back in Ruth. You know, why are we thinking about these things? And, and, and listen, I cherish all your sweet emails and, about Ruth. And, um, but, and I know, I know this can be a challenge, okay, to wrap our minds around, but it's worth it for us to seek to wrap our minds around this. Okay? All that God is, He is of Himself. God exists eternally in and of Himself. Okay, listen to this following quote by, by R.C. Sproul. I think it helps to to bring this down to street level for many of us. If something exists, then something somewhere, somehow, has to have the power of being within it, or nothing would be. Why is there something rather than nothing? What or where is self-existent reality? The scriptures answer that question on the very first page of the Old Testament. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first affirmation of Christianity is that God is the creator, that God alone is eternal, that God alone has aseity, that God alone has self-existence. God alone has the power of being within himself. So the first thing we see in Genesis 1-1, that God is eternal. The second thing we see, and again, I think it's, we can get there pretty quickly, pretty easily, is that God is almighty. Right, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we see what theologians refer to as creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Now, creation ex nihilo is not the same as the Big Bang Theory's proposition that something somehow just happened to come from nothing. Rather, we believe that our eternal, everlasting, almighty God, who has always been, created all things ex nihilo by the word of his power. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible, right? That God is almighty, that he never strains to, to create. It's not hard for him to create. He simply speaks. Or as God says, speaks to the, to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40, verses 25 and 26, to whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see, speaking about the stars and the planets, the, the starry host, 
Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. You see, the greatness of his might and the God who is strong in power. See, God is almighty, or we can say he's omnipotent, and it means that he has infinite power. He has the power to do whatever he desires to do. He has the power to do whatever pleases him. And we see this in the, in the creation account in Genesis 1. And God's omnipotence is related to something that now we're getting into some of these attributes of God that maybe we don't often think about immediately when we turn to Genesis 1. But God's eternal. He's almighty. The third is God is transcendent. He's transcendent. When I say that he's transcendent, I mean there's infinite distance between God and his creation. Infinite distance between God and his creatures, between God and us. See, God is not merely a bigger, better version of us. Okay, don't think that. Don't think God's just like us. He's just better and bigger and more powerful. Right? That's what the Greeks and Romans, that's what their gods were like. Right? They were simply bigger and more powerful versions of humans with all the same flaws and all the same proclivities. That's not the God we find in Genesis 1.1. He is transcendent. He's completely other and apart and above us. As one pastor put it, God existed before and wholly apart from his creation, so nothing in the creation can encompass who and what God is. Now, even in saying this, I'm talking about God's transcendence, I've been using words like before and how he, and always, right? That God was before and that God was always there. But remember, right? God, God is not spatial. He enters into space. He's not temporal. He enters into time, right? He's transcendent and he's wholly other. But not only is God transcendent, not only is he eternal and almighty and transcendent, okay, but we also see that God is imminent and he's personal. So look again at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we've been thinking about these, these big, faraway ideas about God, and now we're reminded that God is imminent and he's personal. Again, Richard Phillips says, Genesis 1-1 not only pulls our thoughts infinitely far away in contemplating God's transcendence, but also draws our hearts near to a personal God who is imminent. The very fact that in the beginning God created indicates that he wills to be known and to share a relationship with those outside himself. The reason for this intimacy is that God is personal as well as transcendent. That God made mankind for relationship not only with one another, but with himself. Okay, now with that in mind, listen to what the Apostle Paul says about the personal relationship into which the God who created the universe by the word of his power calls us into through faith in Christ. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Right? He's, he's hearkening back to the creation account in Genesis 1. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, so let that sink in for a minute. 
the eternal, almighty, transcendent God is also personal. He knows you. He knows me. And he calls us by name into a saving relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. Then this leads to another important truth about God that helps us understand how God is imminent and to understand that correctly. So he's almighty, or he's eternal, he's almighty, he's transcendent, he's imminent. And maybe you would not think about this, but I want you to think about it now. Genesis 1 1 teaches us that God is also self sufficient. He's self sufficient, he doesn't depend on anything outside of himself. Since he is complete in himself. Theologian Lane Tipton says, While man is a creature in absolute need of the triune God, we are not self-sufficient. Not one of us. We're in absolute need of the triune God. The triune God does not need man at all. Okay, that's not meant to hurt your feelings. Okay? God loves you. Knows you by name. The triune God does not need man at all. Man cannot add to God's glory or embellish his grandeur because God is self-contained. Therefore, while it's true that God desires and loves the things he's made, that God did not create the universe or the earth or even us because he was lacking something in himself that he was seeking through anything he created. Okay, so to try to, again, understand this, Richard Phillips says, God simply desired to manifest the perfections of his glorious attributes through creation, then through redemption. Yet this desire for glory does not arise from a need as though God did not eternally possess infinite glory. Therefore, all that God needs, he already possesses eternally. You and I have necessary relationships, like we do. We need air and food in order to survive. We need shelter, companionship, honest work in order to be healthy. In contrast, the God who created the universe does not have needs, but eternally possesses infinite blessing in himself. It is certainly true that God desires to bring us into a personal relationship of love with himself, but this is not because he needs love. God eternally possesses the fullness of perfect love, in the interrelations of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You see, Genesis 1-1, the rest of the Bible, it teaches us that God's eternal, that he's almighty, he's transcendent, that he is imminent, that he's self-sufficient. And all of this leads to an attribute of God that perhaps maybe we, we don't often think about or maybe we've never even, never even heard this word before. But in Genesis 1-1, we see that God is immutable. He is immutable. And it matters that we understand what this means. You see, God is immutable. God does not change, and God cannot change. That he's always been, and he will always be precisely as he is now. He's immutable. Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. 
Okay, all created things, all creatures. I hate to break it to you. Even us, we're quite mutable. And we all eventually, we wear out. We wear out like garments. We, we wear out like old clothes. But not God. Our God is the same yesterday, today, forever. His years have no end. He's eternal. He's everlasting. He's immutable. You know, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Do not change. Theologian A.W. Pink says, God has neither evolved, grown, nor improved. All that he is today, he has ever been, ever will be. He cannot change, for he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. He is perpetually the same. He only can say, I am that I am. It's one of the reasons why that name, which perhaps you thought was so, was so odd, coming out of the burning bush back in Exodus 3, doesn't it make sense? That I am who I am. God's immutable. Who he is today is who he's always been. He does not change. He cannot change. Now, what, what, what do we make of this? Okay, what, what difference does this make in our lives? I mean, what, Richard, what difference is all of this going to make in my life, you know, this upcoming Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m.? Friends, it potentially could make, at that time, all the difference in the world. See, if we begin to understand this, it makes a huge difference. I'm going to give you two words as we wrap up, two words to think about in terms of application. They both happen to begin with the letter C. First, there's great comfort. There's great comfort. Right? Knowing that our God is eternal, almighty, transcendent, imminent, self-sufficient and immutable provides great comfort to the Christian. I mean, think about what difference it makes when you begin to pray during a time of great need and you're praying to the eternal, almighty, transcendent, imminent, self-sufficient, immutable God who never ever changes, who can't change. I mean, this is the God that the psalmist lift his eyes to, to cry out to in Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Right? Our hope is placed in our everlasting, all-powerful, unchanging God. He can never deceive us. He'll never falter. He'll never be unfaithful. That his plans and his promises, they never change. And praise God that's true because think about what that would mean if our God was not immutable. He was always, all of this was, there's always these, these variations, always changing. I mean, where would we fix our hope if our God was finite and limited, temporal? Where would our hearts and souls find comfort if God was ever changing? Where would our hearts and souls find comfort if there was a chance that God might change? I mean, praise God, we never, ever have to worry about that, right? The, the truth about God's nature and attributes that we have discussed today are why the Apostle Paul can write the, these incredible words at the end of Romans chapter 8 in verses 38 and 39. Paul says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? Why, why can Paul write this? Because God is transcendent. He's, he's so far above and other than and apart from creation. See, dear Christian, God loves you. And he knows you. He knows you by name. And praise God that this eternal, almighty, transcendent, self-sufficient, immutable God loves you in such a way that there is nothing, nothing in all creation, nothing above, nothing below, nothing though nothing that can separate you from his love in Christ Jesus. Because he stands gloriously supreme over and above, apart from, completely other than all his creation. It's a great comfort. But the other C word is that this is a challenge. You see, I mean, th this is a big God we're talking about. I know we only, look, we only talked about four words you know, in Genesis 1, but this is a big God. It's a big God who's a great comfort whenever you know him. This big God is a great comfort whenever you know his love. You know his mercy, you know his grace. But you see, a, a big God like this, the, the one true God, he is not a God that you can escape. He's not a God that you can ignore. You see, his, his word matters. And his, his judgments matter. So the challenge is for us to be honest and say, do we know this God? Do we know his love? Do we know his grace and his mercy? Do we have a relationship with him? G. Campbell Morgan was a British pastor theologian who was the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London just before famous Welsh preacher David Martin Lloyd-Jones took over that that pulpit, and uh, G. Campbell Morgan said this, the consummation of every human life must therefore inevitably be related to the originating cause. No man can escape God here or hereafter. God is the originating cause. Man is his design, his workmanship. These are the things from which I cannot escape Right? See, a God as big as the God of the Bible cannot be escaped. He cannot be ignored. Right? His word matters. His judgments matter. And we, we need his grace and his mercy, his forgiveness, his love. Right? And in the weeks to come, you know, we're going to read about how our first parents sinned in the Garden of Eden by rebelling against God and his word. And that means that we've all inherited Adam's sin nature, and therefore we all sin in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. But we're also going to learn about God's promise in the garden in Genesis 3.15, this promise that God the Father would one day send a Savior, his own Son, the second person of the Trinity, who is also eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient, and immutable. And he, the Son, would take on human flesh, and he would live, die, rise from the grave, to save, to forgive, to redeem all who would receive and rest on his finished work for the forgiveness of their sins. And friends, just as our immutable God told Moses in that burning bush in Exodus 3, I am who I am 
Jesus, in the Gospel of John, goes on to give seven I am statements. And each of these seven I am statements tell us something about who Jesus is. Tell us something about the salvation that he, that he brings to those who, who rest and receive him as their Savior. Right In John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. See, friends, unless we feast on him in faith, we will have no life in us. In John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. He's the one and only light of salvation in a very, very, very dark world. In John 10, there are two of these I am statements. First, he says, I am the door of the sheep, that he's the only way into a relationship with God. Later, he says, I am the good shepherd, that he knows his flock. He calls them by name. He lays down his life for the sheep to save them. And unless he is your shepherd, you will not be safe from the wolves. You will not lie down in green pastures. In John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. That whoever believes in Christ, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Christ shall never die. In John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He makes it very clear that Jesus is the one and only way, the one and only truth, the one and only life, which is why no one comes to the Father except through trusting resting, receiving Christ. Then in John 15, 1, he says, I am the true vine. And he promises that whoever abides in me by faith will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you know what that means? That just as we see Jesus welcome and befriend sinners all throughout the gospel accounts in the New Testament, what that means for you, dear friend, is that Jesus will welcome you, he will forgive you, he will credit you with his righteousness, he will give his Holy Spirit to indwell within you if you will come to him by faith. If you come to him by faith, you will find him to be a sufficient savior for your sins, sufficient savior for my sins. But the question for us today is, will you come? Right? Will you come? Will you not let your perceived morality and righteousness and religiosity hold you back? Will you not let what you think is the badness and the darkness of your own sin hold you back? See, the God who created the universe, the God whom you've rebelled against in your sin, if you come to him in faith, he will not turn you away. He will hold you in his hand. And that promise I read earlier from Romans 8, he'll make that promise to you that nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate you from my love in Christ Jesus. See, we're going to learn, we're going to learn a lot about God and his world and ourselves and his grace as we continue to study Genesis together. And I'll admit, you know, beginning to, to preach through Genesis is a tall task. It's a bit overwhelming. And so my commitment to you is, okay, I'll keep praying for you and I'll keep studying hard, and I just ask you guys keep praying for me, and you keep showing up, okay? And we're going to keep going through this little by little. We're going to get through it one, one day down the road. <laughs> we'll take many breaks, but I, I hope you can see that there's a lot here. It matters. It matters what we think about who God is. It matters what we think about how we understand these opening verses and these opening chapters of the Bible. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we, we thank you and we praise you for, 
for all of your word. And today we thank you for Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Lord, please, help us to wrap our minds around how you are eternal, almighty, transcendent, imminent, self-sufficient, immutable, how you love us, the salvation you offer in Christ. And Lord, my prayer is that this would challenge us and challenge those of us where we need to be challenged, and Lord, that this would also be a great comfort to those of us in all the many ways that we need it. Lord, please continue to be with us and lead us and guide us as we embark on this journey through Genesis. Lord, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.